Uh, we'll start with the green sheets this morning. Uh, so if you, if you don't have one, they're, by, they're on the table uh, on the way into the gym. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, so readings this week, we're, like I said, we're still working our way through the Pauline epistles. Um, this week we have all from 2 Corinthians, from chapters 4 to 10. Um, lots of good stuff. Again, Paul, Paul wants to come to Corinth in peace. He doesn't want to come and have to be mean. All right? So he's writing this letter because he wants them to get their act together so that he can come and have a nice visit instead of having to come and spend the whole time being upset with them. Um, what... Next week, so, so this week, a lot of, kind of a lot of lists type of stuff, defending his apostolicity, uh, be generous, right? This is where we get the famous verse, God loves a cheerful giver, right? And he's putting the Corinthians to shame because he reminds them, well, the Macedonians didn't have anything, and yet they gave a lot. Um, the implication, you have more than they did and you're giving less, so get your act together, people. Um, my favorite thing, though, um, and, it, and it bridges this week and next week, so I'm going to talk about it just for a moment today. Uh, so the, the reading for Saturday there from 1 Corinthians 10 talks about Paul's boasting and its limits, right? Like, this is how I boast, but not how I boast. But he's, you can tell he's really annoyed because they, they're following these guys who are boasting about themselves. So the Corinthians are following a group of people called, uh, that, that are frequently called at least by the scholars, super apostles. All right, so they're, they're false apostles, false preachers that have come into Corinth and are leading the people astray. Um, and so that's the reason Paul is defending his own apostolicity, because they are defending them. They are defending their apostolicity by saying things like, uh, by boasting, right? By boasting of the things they have in the flesh. And so in chapter 10, Paul reminds the Corinthians that boasting about the things of the flesh is worthless because we boast in Christ. I you know, uh, forbid me to boast except in the cross of Christ. That's, the, that's not from Second Corinthians, but it's, that's the general idea. But then I, I absolutely love Second Corinthians 11. Because then Paul's like, but if you think that the things of the flesh are that important, well, fine, let me boast for a minute in the things of the flesh. I don't like doing this, but you drove me to it. Uh, I'm a Jew of Jews. I am taught by Gamaliel from the tribe of Benjamin. The, I am... If you, want, if you care about the things of the flesh, well, then you should still ditch these other apostles uh, because if they want to brag about things of the flesh, well, guess what? I have even more things in the flesh to brag about than they do. So quit. Um, and then Paul kind of gets at the end of that rant. He's like, I didn't want to do that, but you made me do it. Now, let's get back to boasting in the cross of Christ. I absolutely love it. 
Um, so uh, I also like these sections in the Bible because um, it tells us that sarcasm is com a completely legitimate way of speaking and dealing with things in certain circumstances. You have it here, and the other place that you have this in spades is in Job. So you have Job's worthless three friends, then Elihu speaks up, and then God himself speaks to Job. He's like, all right, Job, you wanna fight with me? Let's fight. Dress yourself like a man. Get ready, we're gonna rumble here, Job. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Tell me, where were you? It's, I love, I, I absolutely love it. Sarcasm is all over the place in the Bible. So, uh, so uh, you, of course, we shouldn't use it excessively, but it is, uh, it is legitimate. All right, uh, so let's go ahead and move on to the middle of the sheet there. Uh, Bible verse for the week and catechism for the week and, and we'll pray. So our Bible for the week, or Bible verse for the week there is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read it all together. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I don't know if you're familiar with the language of great exchange, but that is that verse is the maybe the best summary of the great exchange, right? That Christ, who of himself knows no sin, becomes sin for us, right? He becomes as we are, uh, in order that we might become as he is, namely righteous. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and I know it says memory work, and I don't always exhort you to memorize the Bible verses, but seriously, if you don't have this verse memorized, take the days this week and memorize that verse. It's, it's absolutely worth it. Uh, moving on, Catechism Table of Duties to Wives. We'll read that all together. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, by the working of your Holy Spirit, grant that we may gladly hear your word proclaimed among us and follow its directing. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives, with, who lives and reigns with you in the same Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, um, so go ahead and leave this out. So we're actually gonna look at this. We're gonna look at part of this um, in, our, in our study of the liturgy today. Um, so, so go ahead and leave it out and turn to that page. Uh, before we jump into our study, a few announcements. Um, so uh, originally we were gonna have a youth, youth group tonight. We were gonna play Jackbox games and eat pizza. Um, most of our active youth are out of town for the holiday. So we're gonna move that to a different date. So I sent an email out, it's like, let me know if you're coming. And I got lots of emails that said, sorry, but we're out of town. Uh, and I got one lone email that, uh, with one lone kid that said they were, he was gonna come. So um, as much as I don't mind hanging out with one lone kid, I, we're gonna try to do, uh, mostly because if we played these games, I'd own him. And I don't, wanna, I don't want him to be discouraged, so. <laughs> that's, that's not true. You have, you have to have more than two people to play. Um, anyway, also, so, there's a senior, we have a senior citizen who's uh, looking for a ride to the 11 o'clock service. 
uh, once a month or so, it says. I, I get these announcements secondhand. So, um, so if you're available, and, and as far as I know, it's, it's, it's not far, the, she doesn't live far from church. So if you're available to give someone a ride to church once a month for the 11 o'clock service, um, let me know or let, let Beth know in the office, and, and we'll, we'll try to start coordinating that. Um, announcements during Bible study. Um, okay, pantry stuff is up for grabs at the window. So if you saw the counter when you walked in and how there's a bunch of stuff there, we would like there to not be a lot of stuff there. Um, so if, if, if there's anything up there that you could use and you see it, it's yours, uh, right? Um, so uh, that's not reserved for anyone, please take it. So I have a list here of things that at least were available unless people have already taken it. Disposable aprons, sealed tortilla chips, dated January 2023, so they're still good. Glass coffee carafes, so if, you're, if, you need, if you need one of those, you can take that. Soda spoons, charcoal. I don't know what sort of charcoal it means. I don't know if it means. Okay, so if it's still there, I will take it. <laughs> if someone else wants it, please, please don't save it for me. But I'm like, I'm like that's so vague. I'm like, what sort of charcoal are we talking? So Kingsford, good stuff. The original, the way barbecue should taste. As that's that's what's on the Kingsford bag, and birdseed. That's what my list says. There's birds. So if you like to feed the birds, and you need some birdseed, I don't know if I don't know how it's there. If we used to feed the birds, or if it's left over from a wedding, or what. But my list says there's birdseed. So, so there you go. And there's maybe more. I don't know. But so, uh, up for grabs, free for the taking. Go take a look. All right. So unless there's any other announcements, we'll jump into our study here. Um, so I got a couple questions I want to address first thing. Uh, the first is not directly related to our study, but I'll go ahead and take it here anyway. Let me look and make sure our question asker is here before I address his question. And there. Uh, unless I'm overlooking here, I don't see our question asker. So maybe I'll wait to take his question when he's here. That just seems like it defeat the point. All right, so the other question had at least a little bit to do with our study. Um, so last week we kind of left off talking about the salutation, uh, which is uh, the part of the liturgy that uh, where we say, the, where I say, the Lord be with you, and the people respond, and with thy spirit. Um, so we were talking about the difference in responses there. So um, just, just to, to bring it up to speed, our, in the LSB, there are three different possible responses to the Lord be with you uh, in, in the various liturgies. So in divine service setting three, the response is, and with thy spirit. All right? But if you go to matins or vespers, there's a part right before the prayers toward the end of the service where the pastor extends the salutation of the congregation and says, the Lord be with you. And the response is, and with your spirit. All right. And then, of course, everywhere else uh, it is, and also with you. Um, 
So that is why when you're not following an order of service and the pastor stands up in front of a group and says, the Lord be with you, it's a cacophony. Uh, especially when you have some stubborn folks, which would normally include me, who insist on very loudly saying in with my spirit. Um, so there's three, so, so there, there you go, the LSB bringing us liturgical uniformity by giving us three possible responses to the Lord be with you. All right, so we talked a little bit about the difference. These two are virtually in meaning no different at all. The only difference is they updated the pronoun thy to the pronoun your, um, which is pretty much the normal way of speaking in 2023. I don't go around and say thee, thy, thou um, in my daily life. Uh, I mean, we really, there are merits to it. So um, if you have a King James Bible, what you'll notice is sometimes it says thee, thy, thou sort of thing, and sometimes it has ye, you, and your, and the difference is, so in, in, in Old English, there was a difference. They weren't just interchangeable. The thou, thy, thine, and thee, that was singular second person pronoun. And ye, your, and you was plural. So most languages differentiate between singular you and plural you. So in the Bible, you can tell Jesus is talking to one disciple or the whole lot of disciples based on whether or not when he says you, it's the singular you or you, the plural you. Because the plural you is talking to the whole lot, right? Um, and so sometimes you go to Bible study and pastors and be like, well, the you here in Greek is singular or the you here in Greek is plural. And we don't really differentiate that in English. And he's right. And, and most of the time he's right. These days we don't differentiate that in English. English used to differentiate. Um, so, um, so there you go. Uh, if you're reading your King James Bible, when it says the, now you know it's singular. When it says you, now you know it's plural. All right, moving on. So, but other than that, uh, this, these are some substantively no different. This one is a little different. It takes out the language of spirit. Uh, and and as, as noted last week, uh, the word spirit here is not just a way of talking about the pastor and his person, but it's an acknowledgement um, of his office and the and that the Spirit is given in specific measure uh, to the pastor to carry out his gifts. Um, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean your average everyday Christian doesn't have the Spirit. It just doesn't mean he, it just means he, the average Christian doesn't have the specific gifts of the Spirit um, to do the work of a pastor publicly. All right? um, and a good, a good illustration of this in Scripture, uh, that there's a differentiation of the Spirit, and actually, uh, when Elijah passes on the mantle to Elisha, if you remember right, well, what, what does Elisha, does anyone remember what Elisha requests um, right before Elijah uh, is taken into heaven on the chariots of fire? Yeah, let a double portion of your spirit rest upon you. Um, and so Elisha's not asking for Elijah's human spirit because that'd be weird, right? I mean, that would require changing who he is, right, to have Right? It'd be like, you know, like, I have my own human spirit, Keith has his own human spirit, right? Because we're body and soul, right? And it'd be like me asking Keith for his, ask Keith for his human spirit. That'd be weird, right? I don't, I mean, I like Keith, but I don't want to become Keith, right? I don't want to become anyone else. I like, you know, right? And you don't want to, and trust me, you don't want to become me. <laughs> uh, right, so, so Elijah is clearly not asking Elijah for his human spirit. 
So it's, so it's a different spirit. And he means the measure of the Holy Spirit that Elijah was given to carry out his work as prophet, right? Elisha asked for a double portion. And Elijah's like, well, if you see me as I leave, then you'll know that then, then it will be granted. But if you don't see me, then it won't be granted. And obviously, Elisha sees him because somehow we have to have recorded, right, uh, the way Elijah is taken from us, right? So, and then uh, Elijah's, like, his tunic falls down. Uh, Elisha takes it, smacks the door, and splits, he walks over on dry ground. So there's all these signs that Elisha's request has been granted to him, right? So an understanding that the Holy Spirit um, certainly given to all Christians, that's why we have faith, right? There is no faith apart from the Holy Spirit. So that you have faith is an indication that you have the Holy Spirit, all right? But the Spirit's given in different measure, um, specifically for the carrying out of specific functions, right? Certain functions, right? Um, so, um, so there is an, a specific gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to pastors. I would argue in the laying on of hands and ordination um, to carry out the work of the office. Um, Paul tells Timothy, right, do not neglect the gift that is in you that you received through the laying on of my hands, right? So that something is, that something was conferred from Paul to Timothy, um, and that, and even that is written for our work, all right? So we have here, a re- so we, I very clearly reference here to the spirit that the pastor has to carry out his work as pastor, which again is why the salutation appears where it does, when the pastor is going to do something publicly according to his office, right? Um, I intercede for, for you all the time. I pray for you all the time privately. I don't need your permission to do that. You should all be praying for each other privately all the time, right? Uh, but to pray for you, and, and not just to pray for you, but to, I say a prayer in your place. So the collect of the day, when I say that prayer and I'm speaking, I'm speaking, so sometimes, I acted Jesus said. We have this in the Acts In the set of Christ, I forgive your sins. During the collect of the day, I stand in your stead. Right? I stand in your place to speak to God for you. Right? So what I'm saying to God, you are saying to God. Right? Um, and that's why we have a salutation before that. Right? Um, you are recognizing that I am in the office to speak for you to God. In that instance. Right? And so we acknowledge that the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, right? The Lord be with your spirit, right? The Lord, you have been given this gift, this measure of the spirit and this gift of the spirit for the purpose of standing in our stead to pray on our behalf to God. All right? Clear enough. So I have a, um, so someone, so before I get to the question, um, I did one time hear this. So if you know anything about the Levitical priesthood, you know that, uh, and if you've read through the book of Leviticus, Kind of the highlight of the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, what, where does the high priest get to go? The Holy of Holies, right? Where the Ark of the Covenant is. No one gets to go there except the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All right? And, uh, and there's a lot of warnings, right? If you come into the Holy of Holies in the wrong way, you die, right? And so he goes into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood the blood of atonement on the Ark of the Covenant to make covenant to make atonement for the people. Um, at some point, they started to get scared. Well, what happens if the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies in the wrong way and dies? What do we do? Well, okay, that, there you, we're already done, right? So they're, they're curious, right? Because, um, well, we can't go in there to get him and bury him because what happens if you go into the Holy of Holies to get the high priest after he dies? 
So there's a right way to go in. And so, um, and so they started, so then it says they pull them out with the rope. And you might be thinking, well, what rope? So tradition has it. I'm not sure if it's actually in the Bible, but tradition has it. I'm pretty sure it's not. I don't remember reading in the Bible, but it's pretty well attested to tradition that they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle before he went into the Holy of Holies so that if he somehow did something wrong and he dies there in the presence of the Lord, they can get his body out to bury him. They pull it out via the rope. All right? I don't know if any high priest ever died. Maybe this was experience. I don't know. Maybe a high priest died and they had to wait and the, the, the next high priest had to like pull him out the next year or something. I don't know. But, but they at least... So, at least, so anyway, the tradition is, is that there's a rope, right? Uh, it's kind of the safety net, right? Um, you know, this is what we are doing, you know, to make you going into the Lord a little safer, at least for your body, so we can get it out, right? Um, and I've heard, someone said Luther said this. I've never found it in Luther, but someone, I've heard anyway, that the salutation is kind of like tying the rope around the high priest's ankle, right? You're tying a rope by saying it with thy spirit. It's like you're tying the rope around the pastor's ankle, right? Um, so the pastor says, the Lord be with you. It's a blessing. It's in the addictive, right? The Lord be with you. Um, and, uh, and you respond by saying, and with thy spirit, rather like, uh, okay, thank you, but uh, the Lord be with your spirit. Uh, you need it because you're about to go into his presence and do something that's, a, that's, that, that's dangerous, and you need the gift that he's given you by his spirit to do it, right? So it's almost like tying the, tying the, uh, the rope around the priest's ankle, uh, to go into the presence of the Lord and to do these things according to the office. All right, so especially with the, uh, the idea of various portions of the Spirit, there was a question that came to me last week about the indelible character of the office. And if, and if those words make any sense to you, that means you have at least passing um, familiarity with Roman Catholic theology. So Roman Catholic theology, so they have seven sacraments, and three of the sacraments come with what's called an indelible mark or indelible character. Uh, don't worry. So if you walk into my office and you see the Roman Catholic Catechism on my shelf, I, I have, don't worry, I'm not, I've, I've not ever even thought about going, going Roman. But it is helpful when someone comes up and asks you something about the Roman Catholic Church to like pull out their catechism. What do they actually say? So, uh, so the indelible mark um, is, is something that's attached to specific sacraments. And remember, they have seven sacraments, among which are uh, baptism, confirmation, and ordination of holy orders. Uh, now, we, of course, will baptize you a sacrament. But those three of their seven sacraments, those three of their seven sacraments come with what's called an indelible mark or indelible character, that those sacraments have indelible character. And what that means is that those sacraments are never repeated. So it's not like the anointing of the sick. You can receive the anointing of the sick anytime you're sick. You, obviously, Holy Communion is to be repeated. Penance is to be repeated. You know, in the Catechism, it didn't list marriage as having an indelible mark. But I'm sure they wouldn't say it's to be repeated. I hope not, anyway. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, so, so those three, baptism, holy orders, and confirmation have an indelible mark. And what that means is that even if you fall away, you don't go back to a state in which you haven't received that sacrament. Um, so that means if you've been baptized and you fall away, but you again, you repent and come to the faith, 
You don't need to be rebaptized, And we would actually agree with that, right? Uh, I, think, I think the way the Roman Catholic Catechism defines the indelible character of a sacrament, I think we would absolutely agree that baptism has an indelible mark. Uh, we don't bat, if, if someone falls away and comes back in repentance, we don't, we don't have them be rebaptized. We would say that, that, bat, that their baptism is, is still in effect, right? That, that Christ's bat, the power of baptism that it has from Christ himself is powerful and lasts even in, your, in the time where you left the faith. Confirmation's a little different because we don't hold it to be a sacrament, of course. Um, right? It's a church rite, it's useful, but it's not a sacrament. And so, um, I suppose if someone left the faith after they were confirmed and came back, we usually wouldn't have them do quote-unquote confirmation anymore. But we would have them do a public profession of faith in, this, in the presence of the church. I don't know to what degree that's actually different than confirmation. It's pretty similar. Um, but since we don't hold confirmation to be a sacrament, that's not really a problem anyway. Um, the, bigger, the big question, and this, the question of the indelible character comes up most frequently as it relates to the office of the holy ministry. So priests have, uh, have an indelible mark when they're ordained. First of all, we don't hold ordination to be a sacrament in the same way that the Roman Catholics do. However, we do understand that there is something happening in ordination. So a Roman Catholic would say if a priest becomes wicked and is defrocked, um, he still has the indelible mark of ordination. He doesn't go back to being an ordinary layman, even if he is defrocked and is no longer permitted to carry out the functions of his office. And that is a very... Um, see, I have something of an ontological view of ordination, but not to that degree. That is a very... So they, they understand ordination as having a very... Um, influential effect on the priest's person. All right, so ordination changes something about the person of the priest so that in his person, even if he's no longer a priest, he still has the indelible mark of ordination. Now, now the problem is, is you can't support this at all from scripture. Ordination, there's a gift, Paul says, that comes through laying on of hands. But that doesn't make it a sacrament, the way we define sacrament. And certainly that gift has to do with the functions of the office, not simply the character of the person, right? Uh, Paul says, do not neglect the gift that was given to you, dear Timothy, which means don't stop preaching and administering the sacraments, right? Like, you've been given the office and the gift to do that, so do it, all right? Um, uh, I don't think you can support the indelible mark of ordination from Scripture. Um, and it does seem to me, right, so... Both baptism and confirmation, the other two sacraments where the Catholics would say there's an indelible mark, those are certainly things where if someone leaves the faith, you would hope they would return. Um, and we, I, I mean, we wouldn't make them be baptized again because, because the, their first baptism is, is valid. There's one baptism, right? It's, it's, a, uni it's a union. Um, and confirmation, since it's not a sacrament anyway, it's not a big deal. The thing is, I, don't, I can't think of any instance where if someone was ordained, and he has to leave the office because of, and he's removed from the office, not because of life circumstances, but because he's living, um, but because he's preached false doctrine, um, he's unable to carry out his office, or, he, um, or because of wickedness of life, he's been removed from the office. I can't think of a scenario in which you put that person back into the office. 
right? Like once you've caused public scandals in the church and you're defrocked, you're kind of, you're out. You're out, you should be out. Theoretically, you're out for good unless you start your own like internet ministry, uh, which happens. Guys get kicked out of the church from being pastors and then start their own internet ministry and it's constantly causing scandal, but be that as it may. Um, and the other problem with the idea of indelible character for the office, um, so not, not only that, um, it's the idea that like once you're a pastor, always a pastor, and I just, I just can't, I cannot get that from scripture. Uh, it seems to me, right, because the office is occupied, the office isn't, right, I'm a pastor not because I've been turned into a pastor, I'm a pastor because I've been placed into an office. It's, I always think of it more of an, a location place, right? So if I'm removed from the office, for whatever reason, if I'm removed from the office, then I'm not there anymore. And if I'm not there anymore, then I'm not a pastor. And I'm, uh, I, I'm effectively really no different, functionally speaking, than from the average layman, right? Uh, I mean, maybe I cause big public offense to get kicked out of the office, but I, I don't then keep being a pastor, right? I, if, the, the thing a pastor obviously should do if he's removed from the office for public offense is he should repent, move very far away from the church where the public scandal happened, and then live a quiet life as a repentant sinner in, in another church and function only as a layman would, right? Uh, and so, I mean, that is... That doesn't seem like indelible character to me. It does seem that once you're removed from the office, you're, you're not a pastor anymore, which is significantly different from the Roman Catholic way of speaking. So if you didn't know anything about indelible character before, try to ignore everything I just said. You don't need, it's, it just makes more questions than it does answers. If this was something on your mind, I hope, I hope it clears a few things up. Yes, Mr. Fick. Uh, Oh, interesting. So, you mean like Luther should have like shut up and gone somewhere else, or you mean like the Pope thinks Luther is still a priest, even though he's not supposed to carry out his office because he has the indelible character because he was ordained as a priest? That even even Luther, the apostate heretic, according to the Pope, is still a, has the indelible mark of a priest. Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Pope thinks he should go away. But yeah, really according to this doctrine though, the Pope the Pope still views Luther. At least he should have, if, if they I don't remember when the indelible character, I don't know if that was pre-Reformation or not. But the Pope would theoretically then still view Luther as having the mark the indelible mark of the priest because he was rightly ordained. Um, the other problem with the indelible character, sorry, I keep thinking of more. There's all sorts of reasons this is bad. It's because the Roman Catholics only view ordination as legitimate if it comes from a bishop. Right, so only bishops have the power to ordain. Um, so I, first of all, they wouldn't recognize us as having legitimate bishops at all. But right, so the closest thing we have to bishops is our district presidents. And my district president, when I was ordained a year ago, um, was in Houston at the National Youth Gathering. So we got the vice president, which really, he's not really, the vice president doesn't really act as a bishop. And so, you know, according to the Pope, all of all the Lutheran pastors are are not legit. So I don't have these eligible marks, according to the Pope, because I wasn't ordained by a bishop. Uh, but yeah, so again, right, the indelible mark comes from a legit ordination by a bishop, uh, which has its own problems, and 
I don't really want this to become a study today of the small cold articles, but that would be. Read the small cold articles and you'll see the Lutherans completely, completely triumph over the idea that ordination can only come from the bishop. The other question I came had about the I, I got was about the Eucharist, and I'm still hoping. Oh, I forgot to put my watch back on after church. What time is it? Thirty-seven already. Oh, okay. The other question was about the Eucharist or Holy Communion. So the question went something like this: When Jesus instituted the, the sacrament of the altar, it was only the twelve that were there, and that's how we get our. Um, that's how we get. Uh, that's, that's partly where we draw um, our, our doctrine that the, uh, the, the sacrament of the altar should only be administered by the publicly called pastors of Christ, because Christ administered it and gave it for administration to the apostles. But the question runs, why then, how then do the apostles know that all Christians should be receiving it, right? So if it was only given among the apostles, Maybe only pastors, maybe only the apostles should be receiving the body and blood of Christ. Uh, and then the question went on to say, in Acts 2, it seems pretty, pretty evident that, that the whole church is receiving the sacraments of the altar. Um, I, think, I think in this, in this instance, we have to go to the words of institution. Um, and what is the intended result of the sacrament? Um, my, this is my body given for you. This is the new. This cup is the New Testament, not in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. All right. So, so the intended result of the sacrament for those who receive in faith, of course, is the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so, this is one of the ways that Christ Himself has instituted to uh, to give forgiveness of sins to the people. And so let's fast forward. So that's like Luke 20-ish, 21, somewhere in there. Fast forward to Luke 24, the end of the book. Uh, Jesus says, so, so Luke has very clearly that the sacrament of the altar is for forgiveness. Jesus charges the apostles right before he ascends in Luke 24. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, right? And eating the bread and drinking the cup is a proclamation of the Lord's death and therefore a proclamation of forgiveness, right? Um, so if it's to be proclaimed among all nations, I think you have a very internal argument just from the Gospel of Luke uh, that, uh, that, that the Lord suffers to be distributed as proclamation of forgiveness to all nations, distributed to the, to the faithful from all nations who come to receive it. Uh, the other argument is going to be a little bit not quite as concrete, uh, but I think worthwhile anyway. Um, so, so my contention is always that when Jesus feeds either the 5,000 or the 4,000, uh, I'm not saying he's given the 5,000 or the 4,000 to suffer, but when he does this, that he is teaching specifically about the Lord's Supper and how it's to operate. If you ever notice, the formula by which Jesus blesses the bread before he breaks it and feeds the 5,000 is, um, is, very, is very similar to the words of institution. I actually, uh, sorry, I hate, I hate talking about, uh, I don't hate talking about it. I hate using my life as an example, but, but here we go, right? So, so I was reading through this at home one day over the vicarage, and I was reading the feeding of the 4,000, and I was like, it's like, this is almost, until he tells them to like, give it to the crowd, 
It's almost exactly like Lord's Institution. So I, so I said, hey, Jamie, finish the line for me. Uh, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And then she's like, and said, take eat, this is my body. I was like, yeah, except it's not because Jesus is feeding the 4,000 in Mark here. Right? So, so clearly there's this really um, intense link between the feedings and the Lord's Supper, right? And so Jesus in the feedings, if you remember, uh, one, of the, one of the accounts says, uh, the disciples walked up to Jesus and say, um, hey, they have nothing to eat. We don't have anything to give them. And Jesus is like, you give them something to eat. And they're like, well, how? And so if he shows them, right, so he blesses the bread. He gives it to, Jesus doesn't walk around and feed the crowds. Jesus feeds the crowds through the disciples, right? The disciples are the agents by which Christ feeds the crowds, all right? And, I th and, and like I said, there's so many connections to the, to the um, linguistic, thematic, all this stuff. There's so many connections um, to the institution of the sacrament that I think it's pretty clear from that that, um, that Jesus intends the sacrament to be distributed to the masses through the disciples, right? Um, and then they are to collect the leftovers so that nothing is lost. Uh, it's in John 6. And also clearly, right, so we have the next two already. Um, and, and we know from Scripture very clearly that Jesus means it to be distributed to, uh, to the faithful of the church. Otherwise, um, he would have put a stop to it. We wouldn't have all of this. How the apostles know, I'm not sure exactly how they knew. Um, but we know that Jesus intends this because it's being done. And, and there's no and there's no stoppage to it. And, and we and we the New Testament's the inspired word of God. And it speaks of the distribution the distribution of communion to Christians positively, which means that we know it, it ought to be done. Alright, so those are the questions. I meant to talk about colleagues today. Um, I think we have a few minutes. We can maybe still still do it. What do we got here? 43. All right, we can do this in five minutes. All right. Actually, no, we'll, we'll, we'll start with collects next week. Any questions I can answer in five minutes, though? Actually, we could be done now. I, I, we might start 11 o'clock church on time. <laughs> Any questions about what we've, about um, the salutation, indelible character, or, uh, or the sacrament of the altar and its distribution to 12 Christians? Yes. Yeah. Still yours, yeah. Yeah, so so that's that's a paragraph I was handed and told I mean it's right. The forgiveness of Jesus is there. The forgiveness of Jesus comes to them not through that specific blessing. Um, they can come receive a bless so so the wording's a little bit vague. I'm not going to try to correct it at this point. It's established. We read it every week. It's fine. It is a little bit vague because it almost gives the impression that there's a special measure of forgiveness that's given through this blessing. That's not happening, right? I mean, Jesus never says that there's specific forgiveness that comes through the, uh, through the blessing at the communion rail for those who don't receive. What it, what it means is that, right, um, Jesus' forgiveness is for all. Therefore, we all stand under the forgiveness of Jesus. 
And since we all live in that forgiveness, we all have the rights as children of God, even if we're not receiving the sacrament, we have the rights as children of God to approach and ask for a blessing, even if we don't receive the Lord's Supper. So, 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 the, so the line of thinking on that is, you have received the forgiveness of Jesus, therefore you may come without fear to receive a blessing. What? What's the relevance of the blessing? Um, so, so, I had a professor in seminary who said something along, along the lines of, if the blessing is so great, why don't we all get one? Um, so, I don't know. When I was a kid, we were like an old school TLH church. Basically, the only kids that went up to the altar um, were ones that were being carried by their folks. Um, I remember being very young, and Dad's like, all right, you're old enough to sit in the pew by yourself. You're not going to come up until you commute. Um, so I don't ever remember receiving a blessing. As long as I can remember, I was sitting in the pew. Um, at some point, it became very, I'm not saying this is bad, pastors felt bad at some point about walking by these kids that parents were bringing up uh, with them for communion. And at some point, pastors started giving, giving them a little blessing. Uh, which is fine, and then, right, um, as with all things, right, it, it became kind of sentimental, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? So, um, so it became sentimental, so more kids started, parents started bringing their children up for a blessing, and that's fine, right? Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, all for it. Um, and so I, I, my suspicion is that this really started giving kids a blessing, and the pastor knows these kids that they're Christian, they're baptized, so yeah, give them a baptismal blessing, and then we started, right, so it, and I think the other thing that fuels this is, so in American Christianity, the norm used to be closed communion, not just the Lutherans and Catholics, everyone was doing closed communion. Baptists were doing closed communion. Methodists were doing closed communion. Presbyterian, right? Anglicans, like, no one, it was just expected that you, like, so Baptists would never walk into a Lutheran church and expect to commune, right? Because Baptists, they knew they didn't commune non-Baptists and they didn't commune at non-Baptist churches. It's the way it was. Uh, with, uh, with close communion becoming less and less the norm, I think we Lutheran pastors have a lot more people coming in from other Christian denominations who were just expecting that, that they would commune because their open communion was, was, was just the way it was, 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 was prevailing. And so I think the question, and, 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 and this happens all the time when you tell someone that they, that they need to wait to commune until they've had chance for instruction and, uh, so that they know uh, what they're confessing by communing here, um, there's, it's frequently perceived as unloving and unwelcoming. And so I think part of welcoming all up for a blessing came a way to show hospitality and welcoming to people who were not yet ready to commune at a, at, at a, at a Lutheran church. So we, have, we ask you not to commune today, but please come up and, and you can receive a blessing from the pastor. Um, so I really think those were the, the kids coming up and then having the, the decline of close communion in America and wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to show hospitality even if we couldn't 
uh, even if we couldn't welcome someone to the altar. I really, those are those are my suspicions for the rise of giving the bless, giving blessings. So is a blessing a part of forgiveness? Not in a specific way. That's what I mean. Not in a specific way, right? It's it's a prayer, right? I perceive the blessing as saying a short prayer for that person. Uh, and I don't give a baptismal blessing because when we have, I don't want to give different blessings. That gets too complicated. I don't know if the, especially when the non-member off the street comes up and has their arms crossed, I don't even know if they're baptized. So I don't want to walk up to someone who's not baptized and be like, the Lord bless and keep you in your baptismal grace is unto life everlasting or something, if, they, if they're not baptized. So, so I just say, the Lord bless you. Right? And it's, and it's functionally no different than when I see the same person at the door shake their hand and they're on their way out and I say, God bless you, right? That's the sort of blessing I give to people all the time. Even my members, I say, God bless you, like, when, I, when I speak to them interpersonally. So I, I don't, at the communion, you know, I don't perceive the blessing as being any different from the same sort of short fair, uh, farewell greeting that I give, that I give to anyone. Um, but it is, but it is useful in that way, right? And, and like I said, they have a right to that blessing because they live in the forgiveness of sins. That blessing isn't giving them a special forgiveness. And if it was giving them a special forgiveness, then we really should bless all the communicants too. But we don't because it's, yeah, like I said, it is, it is just that short prayer. All right, we gotta quit. It's 10 till, so God bless you all. See you in church.